I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, Donald Trump's impeachment trial begins today. And Mitch McConnell wants it to last about 10 minutes. Uh, We're also (laughs) going to talk about a very busy weekend on the 2020 campaign trail, which included the New York Times surprise endorsement of not one but two presidential candidates. And later in the pod, you'll hear Tommy's interview with Chris Liddell Westerfeld, a former colleague of ours who's just published an oral history of Obama's 2008 campaign. Uh couple quick housekeeping notes. Love it. How was the show this weekend? Action-packed. Action-packed. Love it or leave it. We had presidential candidate Deval Patrick. Uh, he was a very good sport during Queen for a Day, though I do think didn't understand where or why he was doing it, uh, <laughs> where he was or why he was doing it. Can't uh, blame him. Kara Swisher on Facebook, uh, Mitra Juhari and Damon, Damon Young were there. Both really an all-star show. That is Check a it out. show. Uh, also, episodes three and four of The Wilderness are out now. In the Southwest episode, we talk about how Sunbelt suburbs are turning blue, and I sit down with some Romney-Clinton voters. In the Southeast episode, we talk about expanding the electorate with Stacey Abrams, and I talk to some voters who stayed home or voted third party in 2016. Uh, Please subscribe and check it out at thewildernesspodcast.com. Check it out. Uh, Finally, Pods of America and Love It or Leave It are going on tour. See where we're heading at crooked.com slash events. We also just added a new Santa Barbara show on April 17th. Pre-sale tickets are available starting Wednesday. Again, check it out at cricket.com slash events. We would love to see you on the road. Uh, all right, here we go. The third impeachment trial in our country's history begins today. Over the weekend, the House of Representatives laid out their case against Donald Trump, arguing that his, quote, continued willingness to corrupt free and fair elections, betray our national security, and subvert the constitutional separation of powers makes the president, quote, an immediate threat to the nation and the rule of law. Not mincing words, guys. Uh, Trump's lawyers have decided not to contest the basic facts of the case, but instead argue that extorting Ukraine until they announced a phony investigation into Joe Biden wasn't impeachable. It was just a foreign policy decision. Uh, And being the first president in history to obstruct an entire impeachment inquiry wasn't impeachable. It was just executive privilege. Uh, So basically... They've done a full Nixon here. When the uh, when the president does it, it's not illegal. Um, it seems like we've come a long way from the no quid pro quo days. <laughs> why, why do you think they landed on this argument? 
I mean, they're, they're just fighting it out in the court of public opinion, and their entire goal, the Trump team's goal, is to prevent any Republican senators from defecting. So they know they have no argument on the facts. We all read the transcript where he tries to extort the Ukrainian government for dirt on Joe Biden uh, in exchange for withholding military aid and other support. They just need to keep a bunch of Republicans scared of a primary. Yeah. What do you think about I think, it? I think two things. Uh, one, I think they feel like they're on safer ground talking about executive power than they are on the facts of the case that the it's very hard to dispute the record um and executive privilege is a place where a lot of republicans will feel comfortable seeking kind of readout from the facts which are so damning and then uh on top of that um i think they're kind of trying to talk to john bolton a little bit Mm -hmm. and uh otherwise i think they're just not really sure what to be saying it's a pretty hard they have a very hard a, a sophisticated legal argument on behalf of Donald Trump is an incredibly difficult thing to make. That is why, to this day, we have never actually heard one. Yeah, if they can get into the weeds on what does executive privilege mean? Mm-hmm. What is an impeachable offense? Let's get Alan fucking Dershowitz up here talking about the Constitution. Let's bore some people, right? They're also trying to protect themselves in case we do hear from John Bolton. We do hear no ex- new explosive evidence because whatever sort of explosive testimony and evidence we may hear in the next couple of weeks, they're just going to say, yeah, well, that may be true, but um, the president still gets to do whatever he wants to do. He yeah, can't I mean, be. He basically their argument is basically that the president can't be impeached for abusing his office. <laughs> yeah, it's literally their argument. I yeah. mean, they they want to uh, exploit the confusion over what an impeachable offense is. Yeah. they're trying to argue that it has to involve a violation of criminal law. That is not true. That's absurd. While there is minimal language about impeachment in the Constitution itself, there's discussion among the founders as it was being developed that shows their clear intent to cover abuses of power. Uh, And our statutes are based in English law that's also clear about that intent. So no experts are actually confused about whether an abuse of power is an impeachable event. It clearly is. In fact, uh, what's the the creep who always Skypes on Fox and defends sex offenders? Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz himself. (laughs) Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer? In the 90s, Jeff's friend. Jeff's Epstein's buddy uh, in the 90s during the Clinton impeachment took the opposite position that he's taking today on whether abuse of power was impeachable. Two two quick points. One, it also is just worth noting that one of these talking points has gone away now that the GAO has said that it was illegal for Mm -hmm. the president to withhold uh, the aid to Ukraine. That's one. And two, I I don't believe it is fair that Mitch McConnell is not accounting for the amount of time it takes to clear the line of sludge and slime that Alan Dershowitz leaves behind himself when he moves through a room. Uh, and I just think it's like really unfair to the Democrats who have to speak after him that they're going to probably have to just kind of wade through that layer of disgusting sleaze that he puts behind himself. Their, uh, <laughs> their response to the Government Accountability Office, which is Congress's nonpartisan watchdog agency, um, is truly amazing because basically the response is just, too late. <laughs> right. Nope. Should have or, got, the GAO should have made that determination that it was illegal while the House impeachment hearings were going on. Now that they didn't, it's too late. We we got away with it. That's, that's it. how that's, that's how all, it works. That's how it works. That's how it works. Now let's talk about the rules of the trial. Originally, Mitch McConnell said that the House's lawyers and Trump's lawyers had twenty four hours over two days to present their opening arguments beginning Wednesday afternoon. After that, Senators may question the parties for a period of time not to exceed 16 hours, and once the questioning has ended, both sides will each have two hours to make further arguments. Only then will the Senate be allowed to vote on whether to subpoena witnesses, new evidence, or even admit the existing evidence into the public record. These rules are, of course, very different than the rules from the Clinton impeachment trial, which means that Mitch McConnell lied to us, which, you know, never thought I'd see the day. Just fell over. Um, (laughs) 
but this, on, I'm getting then, back up. Then something happened just this morning. So this led to a big public outcry. And lo and behold, uh, an hour ago, uh, Mitch McConnell changed his mind. Uh, prosecution and defense will now get three days each instead of two. And the House evidence will automatically be entered into trial. So fairly small concessions here. It's not like uh, Mitch McConnell had this generous change of, change of heart. Like clearly he believed he didn't have 51 votes for those rules and was forced to do it because everyone um, there, because there was such a public outcry, which leads me to my question. Um, Let's start with what the Democrats job is here and what the Democrats can realistically hope to achieve throughout this trial, knowing that there is almost zero chance that uh, this will end in a conviction. What do you think? So I think, first of all, it's just worth praising Pelosi for holding up the articles because I remember the original draft of the rules said that um, if you don't get your impeachment in 30 minutes, is free. Um, <laughs> uh, but that said, you know, I do see a lot of like, <laughs> there's a lot of people in the weeds of what these rules mean. And, oh, are they going to vote for witnesses or there will be first be a procedural vote to determine whether or not there will be a vote on witnesses and what have you. I think it's just worth remembering that all the procedural hurdles aside, those rules can make life a little bit easier, a little bit harder for the kind of Republicans that would vote for witnesses, your Susan Collinses, your Mitt Romneys. Um, we can call them gettables. The gettables. <laughs> yeah. Since, since the, modern, it's not a word we can use the, for any of them, but right. we can call them gettables. The gettables. Yeah. Uh, like McConnell can basically make their, if he keeps them to, if he keeps them on his side on the no witnesses, no evidence trial theory, uh, then he can make that a little bit easier for them with some of these procedural motions. But ultimately, what we were talking about is whether or not, you know, four people will decide to vote in favor of having witnesses and evidence at this trial. And I think everything should be focused on that. Yeah, I mean, like, there's some roles that I would have liked to have seen that didn't make it. Like, you know, no headbutts, no eye gouging, no groin stuff. I no think that's a stuff. big one. But I mean, like, the comparison to the Clinton Amy impeachment... Amy Klobuchar is like, that's, that's my fucking bread and butter. <laughs> the, the comparison <laughs> to the Clinton impeachment is so frustratingly stupid because in 1999 in that trial uh, depositions had been taken for years as part of a grand jury investigation that were videotaped publicly released transcripts of which were publicly released and portions of the interviews were even shown on tv on the senate floor uh so like the fact that we're even debating whether to allow fact witnesses like john bolton to testify shows you how different this actually is and i do think that has to be a big part of the democratic case is that this is an obstruction effort yeah i, th I think broadly uh realistic goals for the democrats are number one like let's just get the full truth out so we all know exactly what happened right and we know most of what happened at this point but we still need bolton and some other documents right uh number two remind the American people of the president's crimes and why they matter to them. Yeah. I think we have to continue to, so that this resonates with people who are watching. Why is it, why is it bad for you that the president has tried to cheat in another election? Mm -hmm. um, and then I think it would be good for the Democrats to force Trump to deliver his state of the union address while he's standing trial for impeachment, as opposed to while he's, uh, while he's just been acquitted, which clearly Mitch McConnell's trying to rush this trial so that Trump can give a, a State of the Union and, and boast of his uh, the fact that he was just acquitted. So we should try to drag it out as long as possible. And then the final one is a is a very political goal. Like we should expose the Republican senators who were up in 2020 as partisan hacks with no mind of their own um, who are going to do anything Trump tells them to even cover up his crimes. <laughs> and that's it. And that's why you were just saying this, Lovett, about the getting those four votes like 
Susan Collins is now the most unpopular senator in the country. Oops. Um, Martha McSally's ratings, uh, approval ratings have gone in the tank. Cory Gardner's uh, probably the first Republican senator to go in 2020. These Republican senators are incredibly vulnerable. And the only way that these Republican senators, including Tom Tillis, maybe Joni Ernst, uh, McSally, certainly in Arizona, the only way they're going to win their races, what their campaign plan is, is to show that they are independent voices, that they are not tied to Donald Trump, that they have their mind of their own. And this impeachment trial is an opportunity for Democrats to say, and all the outside groups, everyone running ads, everyone else, to say, no, these people don't have a mind of their own. They are not bipartisan. They are not independent. They are covering up anything Donald Trump tells them to cover up. I think that's a huge goal for this trial. Um, yeah. Well, Cory Gardner is living in a secret chamber at the Denver airport. So that was a great New can, York Times story. Hopefully huh? they can find him. I have to say, on this pressuring these Senate Republicans point, I think that we as a party are utterly failing. There are 11 impeachment ads on TV right now. All of them are paid for by Republicans to support Republicans. There's no outside game putting uh, money on TV to pressure these guys. It's all being done by the media. And as we've seen, some of these Republicans want to jujitsu that by saying to a CNN reporter like Martha McSally did, you're a hack, and then creating a website and selling t-shirts where you show that you're tough and, you know, against the media to get MAGA money. So, you know, we got to step up our game. And, and you know, I, I thought it was welcome news this morning that I saw Michael Bloomberg is going to be switching his ads from every other issue that he's talking about right now to impeachment, which is good because he's running more ads than anyone else. Um, but everyone else needs to step up. And you know what's happening in some of these organizations. They're saying people don't care about impeachment impeachment as much as they care about health care. So we want to focus all of our firepower on health care. I get that. I get there's limited resources. But like, hey, we'll all chip in for the next couple of weeks just to take a pause and run ads on impeachment to make sure that at the end of this, we have a narrative that is, you know, Democrats really forced a lot of these Republican senators yeah. uh, into an uncomfortable political position because that narrative is going to help us win in 2020. So it is important to do now. Yeah. I also just the good news is that despite the fact that we're at this financial disadvantage right now, the polls are getting stronger and stronger. There is now a majority in favor of not just impeachment, but impeachment and removal. The numbers are really uh, heartening. And, you know, I think. We all live in this world of like what rules apply to Trump, what rules don't. Is there still political gravity? And I think sometimes we all fall for that a bit. Certainly the media falls for that, different parts of the media anyway. And it's just worth remembering whether it's taking out Soleimani or it's uh, polls on impeachment, like your common sense is not invalidated by the way uh, regular people are watching this unfold. So that I think is at least just a tiny bit of hope in that. Agreed. Yeah. So in order for Democrats to achieve any of these goals, it does seem like we'll need a longer trial that allows new witnesses and new evidence. Uh, already since the House impeached Trump, we got new emails that tie Trump to withholding the aid. Giuliani goon Lev Parnas telling Rachel Maddow that Trump is guilty. Uh, we got the GAO saying that Trump broke the law and John Bolton saying he'll answer a Senate subpoena. What can Democrats say or do to win the fight to make all of this part of the trial? Um, Axios reports that Trump officials feel bullish about convincing Republican senators to buy their argument against new witnesses. Uh, and that argument is that it could compromise national security. <laughs> That's an utter horseshit <laughs> argument. I mean, they're trying to say that John Bolton can't testify first for executive privilege reasons. And there's an argument to be made there, right? There is executive privilege that exists for all presidents. This is an extreme situation, an impeachment trial. But the notion that uh, Bolton couldn't find a way to talk about the 
conversations with Ukraine after Trump declassified the transcript of the phone call is ridiculous. And it's just an abuse of the classification system again, like when they tried to put it on the code word server to hide the facts from the American people. It's also it's on, on the executive privilege thing, too. It, it's one thing to claim that there are certain aspects of what John Bolton talked directly with Donald Trump about that might fall under executive privilege. Now, I would <laughs> I think lawyers would argue that that doesn't protect the president from committing crimes. Yep. But also that certainly shouldn't mean that regardless of your view on executive privilege, that that's a blanket rule that John Bolton can't testify mm. at all. He's uh, telling his book publisher. It's ridiculous. How about I mean, us? Executive privilege doesn't allow you to commit crimes. It's right. not an exce- it, the, the, the founders didn't say, yeah, no, the House has the right to impeach and we're going to have this impeachment thing and we're going to make sure that the president can be impeached. Oh, but we forgot. He can also just uh, use his get out of jail free card, which is executive privilege. Why didn't we think of that? Like, what? That, that, that's not the, the meaning president. of fucking executive privilege, you right. assholes. <laughs> it's crazy that Axios just took that spin and was like, oh, they're very bullish about it. They're very excited. They're, Pat, uh, Pat Cipollone is proud that he's come up with this argument about national security. Like, yeah. What are you talking about? Also, I know that like Lev Parnas is looks like a, a morally flexible giant baby that has shady associations, and like maybe we should be cautious about believing everything he says. But you know, corrupt people tend to hire other corrupt people to do their crimes. So yeah. you know, I'd like to hear what he has to say. I think we should push for it. It's pretty explosive, Rachel Maddow interviews. Yeah, I'm totally open. Investigate. I'm totally open to the possibility that Lev Parnas may have not told the entire truth. To Rachel Maddow, that's certainly something, a possibility I'm willing to entertain. That said, if everything he said was made up, Lev Parnas is the greatest screenwriter in the history of the world. <laughs> and actor. <laughs> yeah. And actor. He was yeah. Also, yeah, he's like, he's fucking Phoebe Waller-Bridge over there. <laughs> also, <laughs> She broke the fourth wall. They, are, they already corroborated some of it with documents, right? This yes. Is a, this, I mean, Schiff has been making this point that everyone's so focused on witnesses and there hasn't been enough focus on documents, but they've been withholding all these documents. And I do think in the case of Parnas, like, we don't have to believe witnesses or not if there's evidence, and there's plenty of evidence that the White House is holding back, namely all of it. There's a letter from Rudy Giuliani where he says, hey, I'm operating on behalf of the President of the United right. States and all my actions. Yeah, usually <laughs> do- buy that one. Most often documents don't lie. <laughs> they had to take Ivanovich out of Ukraine because they were worried about her safety, and then text with Lev Parnas showing up being like, I'm, I'm following her around. Here's the kind of pizza she likes. Here's her address yeah. in Ukrainian. I think also, and love it, you just mentioned this about when you're talking about public opinion. The Democrats are on incredibly strong ground here, talking not just about how the public narrowly approves of impeaching Donald Trump, but overwhelmingly approves of new evidence and witnesses. Uh, In the CNN poll that was just released on Monday, 69% of respondents say that the upcoming trial should feature testimony from new witnesses who did not testify in the House impeachment inquiry. Um, If you just ask Republicans, 48% say they want new witnesses, while 44% say they do not. Democrats should be screaming this from the rooftops every single day of this trial. And look, I know that, you know, no one has to like bet on Mitt Romney or Susan Collins or anyone being like courageous and keeping their word. But Mitt Romney's on the record now saying like, yeah, I'm going along with these rules now, but I'm going to vote for new witnesses, you know? And so, yeah, he can break his promise. But these people are going out on a limb to put themselves on the record, not saying Mm -hmm. maybe I'll think about it. Like, yeah, yeah, I want new witnesses. Mm -hmm. So we just got to keep the pressure up. And I think like, you know, the danger and what McConnell is betting on here is that we go through two weeks of this, everyone's bored to death by all the details. And then when it comes time to vote, whether we should have new witnesses and documents, everyone's like, well, I'm not paying attention. That's it. Forget it. Yeah. And, and we just have to do everything we can to keep the pressure up until. Then. And it's and, you know, and look, obviously, he's been lying about adopting the Clinton rules. They're not doing the Clinton rules. But even still, 
The Clinton rules were not around obstruction of Congress, which denied the House a ton of access to important information and building their record. Uh, And it's also worth remembering that by the time the Clinton impeachment trial, this was a situation in which a lot of Republicans wanted to be done with it, too. Sort of a different circumstance. And then just one other thing I'll just throw out there. Phoebe Perfect Collar Bridge. Phoebe (laughs) Waller-Bulge. What? I'm trying to... I'm trying to come up with a Lev Parnas, Phoebe Waller, but trying to find a joke in it. I think you nailed it. Yeah, no, I think I think you perfect got caller it. bridge. Perfect you know, because like perfect call. Anyway, uh, send call, comments. Call Congress, <laughs> please. <laughs> Tommy's wearing the call Congress sweatshirt right now. Two zero two 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 four three one two one. That's very helpful to be able to say this when it's yeah, not in my notes. Good merch. Phoebe uh, Caller Congress Bridge. So again, the senators you really want to target: <laughs> Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski. Uh, Lamar Alexander has seemed like he might do it too. And then some of the other vulnerable 2020 senators, Cory Gardner, Martha McSally, Tom Tillis, Joni Ernst. If you're in one of those states, they're one of your senators. Light up the phones. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. All right. We're now less than two weeks from caucus day in Iowa, and no one has any fucking clue what's going to happen. I really don't. Uh, the race is probably more unsettled and unpredictable than ever. There was another Iowa poll over the weekend from David Binder. He's an Obama pollster who has certainly done a great job of polling Iowa in the past. Um, that poll shows Joe Biden in the lead with 24%, obviously different than the Des Moines Register poll. So no one knows. There's still not been enough polling in Iowa. Um, meanwhile, the race is getting a bit more aggressive. Uh, The Biden and Sanders campaigns got into it over the former vice president's record on Social Security and accusations of corruption. And even Hillary Clinton has weighed in because 2016 will live forever. Um, Let's start with the Social Security debate. Bernie told The Washington Post that Biden has been open to making cuts to the program in the past. Why do you guys think Bernie is picking this particular issue to go after Biden on? and, And do you think it's a fair hit? I think that, you know, what we saw in the last debate is one of the only fiery moments in that debate was Bernie Sanders attacking Joe Biden's record on Iraq. And I think this is part of that same argument, which is if so much of Biden's candidacy rests on stability and experience and wisdom and judgment based on a lifetime in politics, Bernie is systematically going through that that record and saying, what has that wisdom gotten us? Right. If he's open to this kind of this is where he's been over the course of his career and maybe he's in a better place now. Uh, Why should you trust him to not be too moderate, too centrist, too conciliatory with Republicans when that's the tack he's taken throughout his career? Um, Now, you know, there's been this debate about whether you can technically say Joe Biden has been for cuts and how Democrats have over the years described not increasing Social Security as a cut. I actually don't think it's that. (laughs) Litigating that debate, I think, is less important than recognizing that there is a vulnerability in the more moderate positions Joe Biden has taken over the course of a long career. But Joe Biden can clearly respond to that and saying, look at where I am now and where I am now does not comport with with the with the version of 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 my positions that Bernie Sanders is trying to paint. 
Yeah, and also, like, I, I imagine this is an incredibly salient issue among older Iowa voters who yep. you <laughs> assume will caucus and desperately want to caucus for you and come to your corner and historically has been a huge driver of voting patterns in this country. Yeah, I was going to say two, two groups of voters that Joe Biden is doing very well with and Bernie Sanders is not doing as well with, older voters and African-Americans, and particularly older African-Americans, um, all of whom rely on Social Security, mm-hmm. um, especially. And so I think Bernie is sort of picking these issues that might start peeling away some of Biden's core constituencies. And as to the fairness of the hit, you're right. I mean, like, you can look back and, you know, there's clips of Joe Biden in the 80s and 90s talking about freezing Social Security or balanced budget amendments and all that kind of stuff. Raising so, the cap. Raising yeah. the cap, means testing, right? So all this is, it's, I think it's completely fair to look at someone's record. Yeah. There was this whole, you know, fight over the weekend that honestly was like hard to follow even for me (laughs) about like doctored videos and not doctored videos and was joe biden being sarcastic in 2018 when he's talking about paul ryan or not like i don't even want to get into it now because it was all sort of silly i think the main point is joe biden has a record on social security like you said it's fair to go back and look through the record about what he said where he is now is for expanding social security slightly um, so that's where Joe Biden is now. But, you know, it's fair to look at someone's record. I Absolutely. Think. Yeah, yeah. I also just it's it's interesting, too, because like this is something that happened to Hillary Clinton as well, which is, you know, Joe Biden is a kind of mainstream consensus Democratic Party figure. And a lot of times what he's paying for is having the mainstream consensus view at a time in which Democrats just had a different way of thinking about budget cuts, Social Security, trying to appeal to people with balanced budgets. I mean, it's you know, politics has changed over the 45 or 75 years Joe Biden has been in politics. Well, and also, look, we should say that in the middle of the budget negotiations, we were trying to avoid, uh, you know, the debt ceiling and and economic collapse, thanks to John Boehner and the Republicans in 2011. You know, there was one proposal that had been reported on that to get a big deal, we were going to make some minor changes to Social Security that would have, you know, reduced benefits somewhat. And it never went through because the Republicans obviously never agreed on anything. But Joe Biden's getting shit for that, too, because Obama was there for that, yeah. you know, and I, I think that was bad looking back on it. <laughs> yeah. And we all should, should should just be honest that uh, the next time a Democrat is a, sitting in the Oval Office, uh, Republicans are going to suddenly pretend to care about the $23 trillion deficit, and they will act like it is not almost entirely caused by cutting taxes for the richest people on the fucking planet, and will try to gut Social Security again. And so I think what the Bernie people are trying to signal is that he will be uncompromising on that issue and hasn't been in the past. And I think that's a fair tack to take. And I hope other Democrats say the same thing who are yeah. running too. Like, it should not be led down the rabbit hole that we were led down in 2011. Um, so things did cool off a bit on Monday night uh, when Bernie apologized to Biden for an op-ed that one of his surrogates, Zephyr Teachout, had written accusing Biden of having a corruption problem. Sanders said, quote, it's absolutely not my view that Joe is corrupt in any way. He also said, quote, I appeal to my supporters, please, engage in civil discourse, and I would appeal to everybody, have a debate on the issues. We can disagree with each other without being disagreeable, without being hateful. Um, I think this is very notable Yeah, that th- Bernie said that. This is the point of the campaign where it's starting to get nasty, but it's not really nasty yet. And I think often the staffers are a lot more pissed off and, and uh, eager to take shots at the rivals than the candidates themselves. And so I think, you know, the, like... W- 
we certainly should debate Joe Biden's position on Social Security. I do think the Paul Ryan video was misleadingly edited at best. I think it was an overreach probably to send out an op-ed that called uh, Biden corrupt. I think, you know, I would probably not want to be as full-throated with my attacks uh, before Iowa if I were them. And it seems like Bernie is in the same boat as me when it comes to strategic choices. Yeah, clearly. I mean, it's good for Bernie. I'm glad yeah, he said Bernie. that. I should have started that. Um, I think there's also, like you said, there's a political benefit to doing that too, mm-hmm. and that Bernie and Biden share a lot of uh, supporters, or at least people trying people are trying to make up their mind between the two. The plurality of people who support Biden, their second choice is Bernie right now. I wonder what the conversations are like sort of behind the scenes on, say, putting out that op-ed, because it is true that there's sort of these two conflicting things. There's three things. One is, to Tommy's point, about the desire to not seem like you're attacking a Democrat. Uh, But then there are these two competing concerns, which is, on the one hand, uh, nobody wants to see Democrats in the primary add fuel to the Republican fire around Hunter Biden uh, and the sort of (laughs) attacks against Joe Biden and the unfair way in which he's uh, been uh, maligned by Trump. At the same time, I think when the cameras are off and when the tweets aren't, when the tweets are going into the draft folder, say, I think everybody's like worried, like, you know what? He does have a problem. Now, I think it's wrong to call it a corruption problem, but what's yeah. happening in the impeachment trial is a huge liability for Joe Biden. And I think everybody recognized that. And it's a difficult situation in which you don't want to accede to Republican uh, sleaze around Joe Biden while also recognizing that, A, there is something corruptish yeah, I- about about Hunter Biden's job and and B, it will be a political problem for Joe Biden. That's just a, a fact. But the op-ed didn't say any of that. And here's the thing. In the op-ed, right, she talks about a bunch of different issues, you know, where Biden has received money here. You know, she, you can, she, it's actually an op-ed about policies he's taken, policy mm-hmm. positions he's taken, which is fine. It's the use of the word corruption, corruption that's exactly. the real problem here. I think the test is, if you're going to say something about one of the Democratic candidates, can you imagine saying that same thing if that candidate is the nominee and still say you support them, right? So if, you, so if, if, if Joe Biden wins the nomination... Bernie Sanders can say, you know, I did disagree with Joe Biden's record on Social Security in the past, but right now I think he's going to be a great nominee. And that's a fair thing to say. It's harder to say, uh, I do think Joe Biden has a corruption problem, but I'm happy he's the nominee. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> you can't. You, you just have to be. Th- imagine the future and what you're going to be saying when that person is the nominee. And that goes for what you say about Bernie as well. I'm not in favor of, of kid glove primaries by any means. No. But, but I think that a policy positions should be vetted. And I think, frankly, if there's opposition research about a candidate that might come out in the general election, it should come out in the primary. That benefits everyone in the long run. Yeah. But you're right. Like when you are just sort of asserting someone is corrupt. It's a lot harder to defend, and it's likely to turn off people. Yeah, and I do think sometimes people use that as a cudgel. Uh, and you're not saying that, but I think do people do use that? It's just worth. There's a difference between saying "don't attack each other," you know, "do kid gloves," yeah. don't say anything that could possibly be used in an ad, which means not having real hard debates. I'm not for civility politics. I'm for keeping it relatively honest. Yeah. I'm for smart politics, which is not being an asshole generally, and, and that's a, I think uh, something that a lot of supporters of various candidates haven't necessarily learned. Yeah. But it's an interesting problem, right? Because like it's so clear that. There is the desire to get some of these questions about Joe Biden into the bloodstream without seeming as though you are making it impossible for him to win in the general. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm just going to go with Bernie. Have a debate on the issues. Engage in civil discourse. There you go. So that happens. And then you're like, oh, great. Everything's cooling down. Biden, Bernie, we're back on the issues. Great. 
And then uh, Hillary Clinton pops up this morning in a Hollywood Reporter interview <laughs> uh, <laughs> where she wouldn't commit to endorsing Bernie if he wins the nomination. Uh, in a new documentary about herself on Hulu, uh, which will be out in early March, she says, quote, nobody likes him. Uh, he got nothing done in the Senate. He was a career politician. What's going on there? What do we think? <laughs> I mean, look, I'll just start <laughs> since I did not tweet about it this morning. Um, but I have a lot of thoughts. If Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton has every right to say whatever she wants to about Bernie if she doesn't like him. She does not have to support him in the primary. She can tell other people not to support him in the primary if she wants. That's just totally within her rights to do that. Absolutely. But she, every party leader, every person with influence who is a progressive, who is a Democrat in this country has an obligation to say that they will support the Democratic nominee whoever that person is. That goes for Bernie people, that goes for Biden people, Warren people, everyone. And you know what? If that's not your view, if your view is that you won't support Bernie Sanders in the general, then you can say that, but you will be attacked for taking an incredibly immoral and wrongheaded position. And I have a feeling that, you know, even as we're recording this on Tuesday morning, I have a feeling this will be clarified at some point soon by Hillary Clinton. If she made a mistake, she made a mistake. And that's fine. Everyone makes mistakes. But just, like, let's just admit that it's it was a mistake to say that. Yeah. And it's, and it's also like not that hard to clarify. Like if Bernie's no, the nominee, I'll support him. That's it. That's it. Easy but thing to say. I do think sometimes that the stakes in this election are so high, it makes it harder to see them, that the, that the, that the sheer cataclysm of reelecting someone like Donald Trump uh, is so hard to imagine that it leads people to not truly accept the stakes in the primary too. And I do see some of that. And that's part of Twitter. And that's that's part of like these comments and how people respond to these comments. And, you know, this is the last period before people start voting. And right now, we, we were just saying we don't know who the nominee is going to be. The vast majority of people who vote in the Democratic primary are likely not to vote for the person who's the nominee. And I see it in my mentions of people who say they don't like Bernie. I see it in people who say they can't see themselves canvassing for anyone who's not Bernie or Warren. Right. I see both sides of it. And I think there's one thing that we can tell ourselves now before we know who the nominee is, is to say, say to ourselves, what can I imagine doing in the general for the person I'm going to vote for? And can I pledge before I cast that vote that I will do the exact same amount, no matter who wins? Just the, the question was so clear. If he gets the nomination, will you endorse and campaign for him? And the answer has to be yes. And maybe the most charitable explanation is that maybe she wants to hold back some leverage to extract some sort of promise or something. I think that's selfish. And to the people online, there's some defenders of hers who are online, who are my friends, who are saying have some faith in her for once, like give her a break. I'm like, I did not develop a four-part documentary about Hillary Clinton. She did. And then she did this Hollywood Reporter interview about it. And clearly the timing for the release of all of this was designed to drop in the middle of the primary because it would get a lot of attention. And what it's doing right now is exacerbating all the challenges and rifts from 2016 at a time when I think all of us know that the, maybe the most important thing we could do as a party is come together to win. And so I know, understand deeply the value of a united Democratic Party that tries to heal these wounds. I don't get who this is helping besides Hillary Clinton. And I think that's shitty. And I'm, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. And I'm so sick of being browbeaten for like expressing what I think is a fairly obvious opinion about 
the like politicians don't deserve our benefit of the doubt. They deserve us to say what we really think and hopefully get them to do the right thing. She is a brilliant human being who is politically shrewd and knows exactly what she was doing in that question. Let's not pretend it was like, you know, I mean, it's just, come on. Look, and but the, the reason that I wanted to talk about this is not because I think it's the biggest deal in the world, but because of exactly what you were just saying, Lovett, which is there's a moment now before the voting has started where everyone can just say, like, get in your, if you are a Bernie supporter, just imagine knocking on those doors for Joe Biden because you you got to do it. <laughs> if you're a Joe Biden supporter, imagine knocking on those doors exactly. for Bernie Sanders. Imagine knocking on those doors for Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth. Well, everyone and, likes Elizabeth. A lot of people like Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> but knock on those doors for Elizabeth Amy Klobuchar, all of them. But leaders yeah. of the party need to start saying today that that's what they're going to do because thousands and thousands, if not millions of people will take their lead from them. And when people would say, oh, I won't support Mayor Pete because he's too moderate or he's McKinsey, that is bullshit. All of us need to step up and do whatever we can to beat Donald Trump. And it's like insane to me that that needs to be restated. Yeah. And look, and there's like you said, the party leaders is, is, is the important thing here because, you know, there's all kinds of voters out there who really don't necessarily see the difference between if, if their candidate doesn't win, they'll say, oh, maybe I will vote for Donald Trump or maybe I'll stay home. There's plenty of people like that out there. and But that's them. It's on us, people who are in positions of influence, to set an example for everyone else. And I'd also just say, like, it's clear from that interview that these feelings are raw and they are personal. And I, like I said, that, I get that. And that makes it, but that makes I understand it all that the for more, Hillary. That makes the kind of opportunity to demonstrate leadership so much more evident. Like how powerful it would be for Hillary Clinton to stand up there and say, Bernie Sanders and I have our differences. He hasn't been my favorite person. She could I, make a joke. Yeah. You, 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 that, like she can, she could just say, like, you know, if, you know, I will support and do everything I can for the nominee, even if it's my least favorite senator from Vermont. Like, it's so easy. Especially when the context for a lot of the frustration and, and the rift between the Bernie and Hillary side is a feeling among Hillary people that he did not do enough for her early enough to get his supporters to lay off her supporters, bring them together and turn them out. It's like we can't be hypocritical here and i'm yeah. kind of glad we're doing this now too because i do think that once like the, yeah once once there's a vote winner then it's going to be a... because like look I, you know we get it's so funny we were talking about this that like we hear it like i don't like those pods of america guys they're in the tank for pete they're too nice to bernie yeah. they're too nice to warren whatever I'm it a is Tulsi stan whatever it is and it's like i know that once the nominee is chosen i'm here for Stan. the people calling for unity are going to be attacked as being for unity because their candidate won but we are sitting here at a moment where I honestly, I genuinely believe that if you told me Bernie Sanders was the nominee, I can totally see that happening, just as likely as I can see it being Biden. You can see Warren getting it. You can see Pete getting it. You can see well, that's why it's Klobuchar good. from downtown. It's good It's good doing this now <laughs> when the race is so unpredictable and we right. have no idea who's going to win. And one more thing before we get into it. Uh, the person with the most delegates should win the nomination. Yeah, It's a race for delegates just before we get into that spin. Because ah. that's going to be a whole bunch of spin. Oh, but I got more here and I won this state and I won these kinds of states. We all went through this in 07 and 08. Everyone had their spin about like why they were the big winner. It's a race for delegates. The person with the most delegates at the convention should be the nominee, barring something catastrophic. Yeah. Good luck with that pitch on uh, Iowa caucus night when there's like 40 different data sets out there. <laughs> That's partly why I said By it. By the way, guys, so I'm going back to Iowa tomorrow, Wednesday. Oh, you're going uh, tomorrow? Wow. Yeah. And like, I've been reaching out to all these campaigns, just checking in, see who's got events going on. They're all like, well, we think we might get in Friday night. 
after impeachment, but you know, oh, no. there's like four different snowstorms barreling down on the state. I mean, it is so unbelievably unpredictable. I mean, I'm a I'm a Des Moines Register and Seltzer uh, poll stan, right? And I, same, I still same. feel like that sample is the biggest, and, and she's probably the best pollster in the state. But the fact that these numbers are all over the place, the fact that no one knows who's going to turn out. I mean, even the Register folks think that we're talking a third of the electorate will be new voters this time. That would no be, one has yeah. any idea. I mean, look, a- add to that the fact that now Buttigieg and Biden are going to be roaming around Iowa alone. Well, that, I, I was, wonder if they'll go together. I, I was <laughs> Buddy say, comedy. I am an in uh, Seltzer stand as well. What I would do is I wish everyone else could just pull their money together and pay Ann Seltzer and the Joint Register to conduct polls every week because I do. Yes, I we be- Ann. I believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. I believe. That's good. I believe that um, poll, but I don't know what the trend has been. You totally. know, these things move around so fast that if she pulled again today, she could find what uh, Binder found. I don't know. And we, we just don't know. I, yeah. Binder's a great pollster. I was surprised that his Bernie number has been so low over time. Feels yeah. Like that doesn't match the because what, one national thing, trend. Either. Well, one thing that Binder nailed back in 08 was that there would be this larger caucus universe for Barack Obama that most people had missed, except for Ann Seltzer. So her and Binder were on the same page then. Um, all right. Finally, over the weekend, a puff of white smoke emerged from the New York Times <laughs> building in Manhattan, letting the world know that the editorial board had made not one but two endorsements in the Democratic primary, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. The endorsement read as follows. The radical and the realist models weren't serious consideration. If they so were ever, I know I'm so angry. If they were, I was screaming in our house watching the special. Nerd, <laughs> Emily was, I know I'm such a nerd. <laughs> Emily was in the bedroom like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Um, all right. So, if there was ever a time to be open to new ideas, it is now. If there were ever a time to seek stability, now is it. That's why we're endorsing the most effective advocates for each approach. There will be those dissatisfied that this page is not throwing its weight behind a single candidate. Everyone. Favoring centrists or progressives. But it's a fight the party itself has been itching to have since Mrs. Clinton's defeat in 2016. Ms. Klobuchar and Ms. Warren right now are the Democrats best equipped to lead that debate. May the best woman win. Uh, all right. Let's start with. I feel like we should what, do process and substance. Exactly. Oh, that, I, said, okay. I was going to say, what do you guys think of their reasoning for picking two candidates? And then we can talk about their reasoning for picking these two candidates. So let me start here with something charitable. Uh, (laughs) We have some experience with how hard it is to create a new TV show, especially off of an existing thing, right? We we had Pod Save America on HBO. It was a challenging, painful process. I give them credit for trying to be innovative and try new things with the weekly, a show that I have not watched. That said, (laughs) building up like an editorial endorsement process in this silly, like performative reality TV show way Sure, it can make it more transparent, but it also heightens it. And it was just like, it seemed ridiculous online at the time. And that ridiculous sentiment, I think, gets overwhelming when you end up choosing two candidates and you puff up this moderate versus radical narrative. I mean, the point of an endorsement is to choose. Yeah, otherwise, With, without otherwise that just, core otherwise don't element, endorse. you don't have an endorsement. We're not endorsing here. We're just because we... Cause, uh, we it's a tough time choosing for a whole bunch of reasons. We're like, all right, so we're just not going to endorse. If you're going to do it, do it. <laughs> yeah. So putting aside even landing on two candidates, put aside them putting it on television, like a reality show, which doesn't actually bother me. I was really more struck by the tone of the op-ed, which had this real authoritative spirit to it. Like, well, here's the <laughs> debate we've decided you should have. Yeah. We've which chosen is... the debate that you should have. No, but 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 the, the, the point I was going to make about that is... I. What made me sad about it is it felt like it was from another era because it was it felt like what they were doing was announcing something to the world 
uh, a quiet world where people would hear it over the over, but but they're not it, it just felt like it felt like they like all got together and like thought really really hard about what they wanted to say and then they went up to their podium and just shouted it at a hurricane it is a it is a debate that reflects a narrative created by people like the new york times editorial board and people who talk about politics including us um, a very insular group of political media people that is the debate about the realist versus the radical model it does not reflect how voters are looking at this primary, which is what really made me annoyed. What were we just saying? You ask Biden's supporters, who's their second choice? Most of them say it's Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders, his second choices are split between Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. Uh, Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren have been trading supporters back and forth in this primary for the last several months. But so, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, yes, the fact that voters are ideologically hard to pin down, I think, and not just true. ideologically, because they do say it's not it's not primarily ideological that there's a problem because they're said oh, most of their platforms substantively are the same. It's this sort of view of the world that like, do we just need to return to a time before Donald Trump or do we need fundamental change? Which, again, most voters would tell you both. <laughs> well, that's but this is the point that I like I can even take them on their terms. It's a little bit like, you know, we've looked at all the candidates and um, one candidate has identified the enormity of the problems. However, another candidate refuses to do so in the solution. Yeah, it hit, it ends up hitting both of them. Yeah, it's, it's which it, is also a problem. It's so like I just want to understand what the takeaway from the New York Times is. It's that uh, they agree with the Elizabeth Warren critique as to the about about the scale of the challenges we face, but they view as radical solutions that would meet those challenges. <laughs> so it's like so the radical approach is to correctly identify the problems and say what you think you should do to address those problems. The realist approach is to look at our problems despite their grand scale and not address them uh, fully. In that's, one, that's realist. In one part of the op-ed, when they're talking about Bernie Sanders, they talk about how they do not favor his uh, Medicare for all idea for health care because they don't agree with that policy. Later in the same op-ed, when they talk about Joe Biden, they say that he only tinkers around the edges when it comes to health care. Which was purely, that, that made me so angry. It what made me so doing? angry because it was like, so you didn't, did you Google it? Because like, yeah, I get that that's the slam on Joe Biden and you can be for Medicare for all ahead of a public option. But the idea that like a public option from, from Joe Biden is tinkering, from Pete Buttigieg it's more, from Klobuchar it's more, from Warren it's even more. Like it's a pure aesthetic judgment. Um, this is petty. Uh, <laughs> editorials are written in like this sort of definitive, authoritative way, right? And they can be a touch haughty. I would say this was no, uh, this one <laughs> was sure. no exception. For sure. The, my favorite part is they did little paragraphs for all like the also rans who didn't get it. For Mayor Pete, they wrote, his showing in the lead up to the primaries predicts a bright political future. We look forward to him working his way up. I know. That, was, that uh, is the most condescending fucking bullshit in a condescending process where some journalist asks you like antagonizing questions. Like it's good that they did it like fine, but you don't have to be yeah. that annoying. I will say we hope Yang, we hope Yang gets involved in New York politics. <laughs> what was that? What's happening? Does he want to do that? I do think Did you ask him. Since uh, everyone's had one nice thing about this whole uh, whole episode, um, I thought the candidates themselves in the interview, since I did watch this show, were maybe made the best case for themselves that I've seen, like better than the debate stage and better than their stump speeches. Like 
I thought Joe Biden was sharp. I thought Bernie Sanders was like came across like warm. And he also said this thing about like, yeah, I don't say happy birthday to people. I don't do bullshit. Well, it's fine. Pete Buttigieg showed some a flash of anger when, uh, you know, he was accused of price fixing. <laughs> Amy Klobuchar laid out a good case. Flexibility. Elizabeth Warren was great in how she would deal with Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Like they were all real. Cory Booker made me cry with the story he told um, at the end of when they asked him who broke his heart. It was. So they, the candidates were really good. I do think talking about um, now the candidates that they picked, Warren and Klobuchar, um, you know, Brian Boitler was sort of making the case for why this might have been OK. And he said, look, I think what they decided to do was they know that this could come down to a race between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. In fact, you know, maybe that's most likely if you really squint at the polling right now. And what they wanted to say is if it's going to be a race between Biden, the more center left guy and Bernie, the, the lefty guy we think it should be <laughs> these two women instead who better represent those philosophies. Uh, so I, and I, I guess, and, and I think Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar do represent those philosophies very well. I, I, and I, and I actually do like jokes aside, like I do appreciate that. I will like the second I saw it, I thought, well, in a field this big, choosing one candidate is not a rebuke to any other, uh, but choosing two was, and I actually felt I, I, my first reaction was to think this is, this is about Joe Biden more than it even was about Bernie Sanders. Like, I, like it is not surprising. Well, they were very dismissive of Bernie Sanders, yes. I would say. Yes, that's the thing is, it's not surprising that the New York Times editorial board is not favorable to Bernie Sanders. Uh, it's just, that's not their vibe. That's not their speed. I get, I like that, that wasn't surprising to me. So the fact that they wouldn't endorse Bernie, I think is an expected result. It was less expected to see them come up with a convoluted way to say, please, please don't vote for Joe Biden. Well, and the irony there is the video <laughs> that went viral from that show was at the very end when Joe Biden's in this elevator with this, you know, security guard, working class uh, African-American woman who just gushes about how much she loves him. And it has like six times the number of views as any other clip from the entire yeah. show. I'll be honest. Look, a little of my reaction to this whole process is lingering uh, rage from the 2008 primary process when they the Times was equally uh, condescending to Barack Obama. They were. Saying things like, but we need more specifics to go with his amorphous promise it's like fuck off. But just but, but again though, it's the same problem. Like that's not true. That's the narrative. Like I don't remember exactly when the full rollout of all the policies were, but I feel as though by the time the endorsement came, oh, totally. we, we were in the heat of like these were two extremely strong policy Wait, shops. Who did they endorse then? I don't. I don't Hillary. Even remember. Hillary. Oh, they did. <laughs> they always endorse Hillary. Hillary well, then Obama. Shows you how much this matters. The game. <laughs> and it also just the place of an endorsement in 2020 is like hard to really totally understand. Cares, yeah. And like it's also worth remembering too that like. These are a group of people who took a task of endorsing someone really, really seriously. And, yeah, they and, did. and like as much as we can make fun of the outcome and I and I want to and I have. Uh, <laughs> the end. The end. But no, but, total, but uh, story in three acts. <laughs> I was honestly my overall reaction to it was one of just sort of sadness at the fact that so much of our politics now are the serious people getting together and just really, really trying to show you that being serious is still cool and still counts and makes a difference. And then they like you just it just comes apart but on just takeoff. Take the work seriously. Just don't take yourselves quite so That's seriously. Right. That right. would be my my note. And look, you know, Amy Klobuchar is happier about her Quad City Times endorsement than her New York Times no endorsement. No shit, man. Probably. She knows how to do it. Probably matters more. I would rather have like a really hardworking like Iowa state senator or rep than the New York Times. That said, in 2008, I nearly cried when the Des Moines Register endorsed uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama was like, hey, man. It's okay. Like we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna make it. We're gonna win. I was like, no, we no, we're not. All right. 
When we come back, Tommy talks to Chris Liddell Westerfeld about his oral history of the 2008 Obama campaign. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. I am thrilled to introduce our guest, Chris Liddell Westerfeld, who is uh, my colleague from 2007 in Iowa and the author of a fantastic book, They Said This Day Would Never Come. It's an oral history of the Iowa campaign, the general election, stories, uh, like the worst moments, the best moments, all rolled into one. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Um, So not a lot of people do oral history projects these days. Uh, I remember thinking at the time, man, I should write down some of these great stories that I'm hearing. And I actually went so far as to force like Mitch Stewart and Paul Tews and a couple of people to sit with me with an audio recorder and talk about fun moments. And then I lost the tape. <laughs> <laughs> How did you like, wh- why'd you decide to do this? What, what, what got you to spend so much time collecting this history? Well, um, so in... In 2014, I was working in the White House, and I left um, to do this. And, and part of the reason was, when I was in the um, in the White House, my job was to make the president's briefing book. And so every piece of paper that would go to him would come through my office in some way. And I saw up close just how much effort goes into documenting a presidency. Um, every email is archived. Every photo is archived. It is wild when you think about it. Yeah. Everything the president of the United States jots down on a slip of paper is supposed to get into a record, to the archive. Yeah. And, you know, in looking at that, um, I, I realized comparatively little had been done to document the campaign that put him in office. Yeah. Um, and so much about the way the president talked about that campaign was about um, how, you know, it wasn't about him. It was about everyone else who was working on the campaign, whether they were volunteers or staff. Um, it was uh, about people who wanted the country to go in a different direction than it was and saw his campaign as the vehicle to help push it that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, And so part of the reason I decided to do this was I wanted to talk to people who had been a part of that starting at the time when it was really unlikely um, and who saw it go from this long shot thing to him becoming the most successful politician of the last 50 years um, and what it was like to go through that. And so the the reason I wanted to do it as an oral history was, um, you know, what so many people would stress me when I would talk to them about that campaign. um, And I think this is true of, you know, any movement cause or campaign Mm -hmm. is the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there was no one person that you could focus on that explained everything else. Um, It was all these disparate voices in different places. Um, And so the hope was by putting them together, um, you could at least give some sense of what it was like to live through that. You sat down with President Obama for the book. I did. What was that like besides uh, a reminder of how slow he talks? (laughs) Uh, well, so, you know, one of the things that I had, um, uh, I, I was pretty nervous about it beforehand. And, uh, isn't it weird? Like we, you work for the guy for a decade and you're still just like, I will never feel comfortable in front of this man. He's just the president. Right. Yeah. And then part of the reason too is, I mean, when you start out as a volunteer or, or a, a staffer 
on the campaign, it's stressed to you how the most precious resource is the candidate's time. Yeah, for and sure. And so if they're talking to you, then that's time they're not talking to somebody else. Right. I always wanted to just hang in the back. Right. Uh, and so, you know, going into it, I was worried that kind of my own anxiety would overwhelm the entire interview. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, I realized uh, this has been cleared to be on the schedule by right. other people, right. including him. So this must be worth the time. Well, you know, what's, and what's ironic about it is you probably felt like, oh, God, I'm wasting his time. This, I feel bad about this. He's probably thinking, this is actually a fun block of a half hour of my, of my day. Yeah. Everything else is a hard, shitty problem. But, you know, you, you were so gracious and you let me use some of the audio from your conversation with Obama uh, for my Iowa series. And, and listening to him and reading him talk about Iowa, you can tell that this was just a, an unbelievably special moment for him. Yeah. And, and the thing that he talks about um, is this this idea that he was the front man, but um, the organizers, the volunteers, the precinct captains, they were the band. Right. Um, and so, you know, he talked about how much it, it uh, meant to him to see people working so hard for him, partly because he had been an organizer himself. Uh, and so, you know, this what he talked about um, is the idea that seeing that made him a better candidate. Mm -hmm. um, wanting to be worthy of those efforts was really important to him. Um, and that was something he talked about, but also people who were around him that entire year talked about too. Yeah. I mean, he would literally say over and over again, like, I just can't let these organizers down. He would introduce people who are 30 years younger than him uh, on stage with him at events. And sometimes the organizers would get a louder cheer than he would get. You know, I mean, it was, he, I think he understood what people were putting into this campaign. Yeah. Um, and I think it, you know, one of the things that was interesting is talking to people who had been in Iowa, but then people um, in other states. Like some, So I started out in Iowa um, and had been an organizer there. But something I hadn't realized until I started interviewing people in other places is for that whole year they're organizing on his behalf, there's no guarantee the, cam the, the campaign's going to make it to their state. Right. So like you're organizing in South Carolina. You know, if he had lost Iowa, then he would have dropped out the next day. And so that talking to people about how they had motivated themselves over that entire year um, was something that really struck me once I talked to people whose experiences had been different than my own. Yeah, we were very uh, blessed. Uh, another word is spoiled in Iowa. We got a lot of his time. Um, I want to talk more about Iowa in a minute, but just, you know, as you reported the book, was there a favorite story you learned years later that was from the campaign or from some, some time in the general election maybe that you hadn't learned at the time that was like one of your favorite, you know, most moving or funny or, you know, worst moments? Yeah. Um, I think something I tried to focus on in these interviews is this question of, um, you know, when you started on the campaign, you were asked, why are you here? Mm -hmm. Not why do you want Obama to be president? Why do you think he'd be a great president? But like what compels you to do this day in and day out? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so hearing people's answers to that question um, and how personal this felt to them um, was something that really struck me. Uh, and so, you know, I, one of the people talked about um, uh, having been in the military in Iraq, coming back, having not been involved in politics before, but how a, a huge driver for him was backing a candidate who had been against the war and getting them elected. Mm -hmm. um, another person talked about they were an organizer in South Carolina. Um, and they had a volunteer who was 86 years old who'd never volunteered before. Um, and they talked about how her grandmother had been an enslaved person uh, and just how um, emotional it was to watch her go through this experience and how she she also, um, when they first talked to her, they assumed that, you know, being 86, she wouldn't want to canvas very much. Um, but then she just kept coming back for more packets. 
Um, and, and I think, you know, the emotional connections that volunteers and organizers would form over the course of that campaign, um, there's so many examples of here of how that played out, and it was affected by the community you worked in, the personal history you brought to it, um, and, you know, what was unique about that moment in time, but also sort of universal about organizing is um, this sense that people were part of something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the different ways that played out, I think, is what what really kept me coming back to this for so long. Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I worked for the campaign until we, we got a paycheck such as it was. But, you know, there were so many people that just gave and gave and gave of their time and volunteered and just did it because they believed in Barack Obama. And it almost makes you like emotional to think about that group of people and how literally he wouldn't have won if not for volunteers and organizers. Yeah, I, I think that was something I hadn't fully appreciated until um, sitting down with some of the the leaders from the campaign to hear about it, how much they stressed this idea that he would not have been the nominee if not for not only the people who organized him in early states, but people who took it upon themselves to organize in states that there was no guarantee would matter in the primary. And because they had done that, by the time the campaign rolled around to them, they already had a structure in place. Right. And that was the reason he won the nomination. Right, right. Um, okay, so I, I, we've mentioned Iowa a bunch of times. Um, and we were colleagues there. C- can you just talk about, like, so you're in school, you get this job. Like, where was your turf? What were you doing for Obama back in 2007? So in 2007, I was a student at the University of Iowa. Um, and I had grown up in Iowa City. And, you know, like a lot of people after the 2004 election, um, I had done some volunteering, but I was pretty despondent after Bush got reelected. Yeah. And I just kind of um, read all I could about that, uh, about elections and realized I was kind of in this perfect position to volunteer for the next one. Um, Iowa being first in the nation and then Iowa City being one of the most liberal parts of Iowa. Uh, so I would go to all of these candidate events when candidates would come to Iowa mm-hmm. thinking about running for president. Um, but Obama was the only one that I really got excited about. And so even when, uh, John Kerry turned down a beer bong, that's right. I was at that. Was that a tailgate? <laughs> yes. That was his tailgate. Was, yes. Uh, a friend <laughs> How of did mine. that go? Well, it was, uh, awkward as the photo shows. <laughs> um, a friend of mine shortly after that walked up to him in a homemade Wu-Tang Clan shirt, okay. threw his arm around him and demanded a photo. Um, so I think that whole morning was a little rough for <laughs> John Kerry. Uh, yeah, I mean, at the time it was a Big Ten tailgate, I think. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, no, you got to know what you're going into there. That's right. Um, but so when Obama announced, I volunteered at his first event in Iowa. I helped start the student group at the university, and this is how I was spending all my time. And so when I graduated, a spot had opened up in the office, and I got hired as an organizer. Um, but what I hadn't realized until I started doing these interviews was um, how unique my experience was in that I was organizing a place I already knew. Yeah, And everybody almost who worked for Obama and I was an organizer had basically come to a place they had never visited to do a job they barely understood for a candidate widely expected to lose for little to no money. Um, and so hearing about how their different experiences played out depending on their turf um, compared to mine, where I was, you know, I, I didn't know how to organize, but I knew the community I was in. Do you think that that is more important than the 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 training you might have gotten as an organizer knowing the community I was yeah in. i i think what was important about it is um i had a, a shorthand with people um like i knew who to call if something came up um mm-hmm. and that that was really important i think that the um the organizing part of it you know i i was not a great organizer i was probably middle of the road uh and i, I think you know the the way i got better at it was simply by doing it yeah um, um 
so today we're, we're we're recording this on January seventeenth. So that would have been you know between two and three weeks out from caucus day. Can, are you able to put your brain back in the state it was in uh, at, at this time in two thousand seven? Like, what would you have been doing right now? I think I would have. Um, just been feeling constant anxiety all the time, (laughs) like overwhelming anxiety uh, hour to hour. Um, And then uh, sitting in an office with other people who probably also were feeling anxiety, but maybe were better at hiding it. Um, And I I think at this time, I still had three or four of my 17 precincts in Iowa didn't have a precinct captain. Oh, wow. And so uh, I was not alone in that. There were other people that were also recruiting. No, but I can imagine that would be anxiety inducing. Yeah. I mean, that was the whole thing. Like your entire job for those few months leading up to the caucus day is about finding precinct captains. Um, Because you can't in Iowa um, be in a caucus yourself. You can't do it yourself. Like you have to find local people um, who will take this on and do this. Uh, And so, you know, so much about those final weeks for me was um, getting people who were supporters to agree to be precinct captains. Um, or finding, you know, and one, I had this one really rural turf where, you know, I've been trying for months to find somebody. Uh, and it was right around this time where um, someone who uh, I'd been trying to get for a long time finally agreed to do it. Um, and he was a, a African-American lawyer in his 30s mm-hmm. in a precinct that was almost entirely white farmers or people who were connected to agriculture in some way. Um, and what I remember in these final weeks is him explaining to me like why he had actually decided to do something. Um, and it was all about how uh, he realized that he hated making phone calls. He hated going door to door. But he, he realized that if he wanted Barack Obama to be president, um, then he needed to do something about it in his neighborhood. Um, and so, you know, the last couple of weeks was all about taking conversations like that and making sure they knew what to do on caucus night. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that campaign, you know, that's, there are thousands of stories like that of yeah. people who did not literally in- intuitively want to, don't consider themselves political. Um, but he appealed to them. Um, and the idea of him as president appealed to them. And so they decided despite their discomfort to do something about it. I don't know this man who is your precinct captain, but I love him. Um, it, it's so funny listening to this and just having, you know, or still being in the process of doing this Iowa series, in some ways, nothing has changed, right? There are still nearly 1,700 precincts, which means you need a precinct captain in all those locations because you, the organizer, can't physically be in all the places that you're in charge of. But also, it's funny talking to these campaigns now where, you know, you guys spend a lot of time dialing through the voter files, traditional voters. Ultimately, Obama's strategy had to be to bring in new people who'd never caucus before because um, we just wouldn't have won otherwise. But today, the the kids that are dialing through uh, the voter file are not reaching anyone. They're reaching like six out of 100 people. And so it's all this relational organizing. I mean, do you, are you like upped on how the organizing has changed? Do you ever like talk to these field organizers about what they're doing and, and compare notes? Well, it's funny. I did talk to someone last week who um, is an intern for one of the campaigns in Iowa. And she was talking about, you know, what I said, so, so do you think you want to go on to another state after this? And she was like, you know, I love this, but what I'd really like to do is um, work at Crooked Media. Okay. And I was like, Get the wow, resume over. that did not exist in 2008. <laughs> Uh, one of the biggest changes, though, is like Twitter did not exist. Right. Uh, you know, so like when we had our staff trainings, you know, you or someone from the communications office would get up and basically be like, no one can talk to the press at all. 
do not talk to the press right. or Josh Ernest will kill you. All right. Josh Ernest, the nicest person on the planet, will kill you. And, yep. uh, you know, the big difference now is you can watch what these organizers do all day just by following them on Twitter. Um, and so you, you can get a sense in a way that just wasn't possible before of the relationships they're forming, the connections they find with people, you know, uh, by happenstance or through relationships. Um, but I, I, you know, I've only been back for the holidays, so I haven't spent a ton of time talking to people who are there now. Um, but what I, but I think you're right. There is sort of a timeless, um, uh, sense with the caucuses. Like ultimately this is about, um, finding other people in your neighborhood who are willing to stand in your corner. And the basics of that don't change. Yeah, and convincing them. Yeah. Um, I love this book because there, there have been so many um, movies, TV shows, books written about the White House. But like you said, like nobody gets the campaign right. And it's not like you're fictionalizing a story. You're just talking to people about these experiences. And it's so much better when you win and so much worse than you could imagine when things are bad. Like, do you remember the Des Moines office got the cruise ship virus, the norovirus in our, in our, it swept through our disgusting shithole of an office and everyone was laid up for weeks. Like things like that happened all the time. Yeah, I I think so. You know, when I worked in Iowa, I was in Iowa City, which was, you know. Pretty sweet. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's good turf. Uh, Yeah, Uh, very uh, non-hostile turf. but one of the one of the supra- things I didn't realize until I started doing this was how different that experience was compared to somebody who was in a rural area. Yeah, and I just walked away with so much respect for people who, no matter the candidate they're doing this for, are the only people doing it in their area when they're not expected to win. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there was one person I talked to who um, I-, I think b- before you do anything in politics yourself, the the best. Uh, the representation in pop culture that you have is essentially the West Wing or movies like it. And um, this one person talked to me about how she had this expectation before she went out to Iowa that this is going to be me and a bunch of um, other people about my age working really hard, but sharing an office together, having the shared experience, forming these great bonds. Um, and when she got to Iowa, she was told, you need to go to Charles City, uh, this 8,000 person town. And um, she was the only staffer in Charles City. So she drives into this place. She doesn't know a soul. Uh, it's 45 minutes away from Mason City, which mm-hmm. is the big landmark. And for yeah. people who aren't from Iowa, Mason City is not that big. Uh, not that big, <laughs> uh, but big and, for the area. And basically in Minnesota. Yeah. And, um, you know, for, for many people who came to Iowa, um, you know, maybe they had grown up in a more metropolitan area. Like if you're used to shopping at Whole Foods, um, the Casey's General Store menu is going to be a bit of a culture shock yeah, when you breakfast get breakfast pizzas, like yeah, different, different vibe. And and so hearing about how um, her and others, uh, you know, you show up, you don't know a soul, and it, the way they would describe going through the act of building community, it wasn't like this is how I made this experience fun. It was like this is how I decided I would survive this experience. Yeah. Like you have to embed yourself in the community and then build a new one around the campaign. And so this 84 year old man became her best friend and he took her to church and introduced her to people at the church who introduced her to other people. And it's not like all these people are Obama supporters. They're just right. people who live there. Right. Um, and so hearing about how people had formed relationships, um, not just in the more metropolitan areas where you would have peers your age, um, but in places where you were the only one doing this work yeah. and you would have to find a way to um, motivate yourself. Uh, lonely. Yeah. And, and what, what passed as an office was often not an office in any real sense of the word too. I mean, because people were on an island and what was just so extraordinary to me was the way people 
like you said, built friendships, built community, and got people to caucus for Barack Obama that probably didn't really care about politics, but really cared about that organizer. That's right. Yeah, that was something again and again. And, and I interviewed about an equal number of organizers and volunteers for this. Um, and what you know was was moving about those interviews is the volunteers would talk about the organizers as if they were you know, in some cases, they're surrogate children, like they had adopted them in this community. Right. And they would talk about, you know, years later going to their weddings or, um, you know, introducing them to their grandkids or, uh, you know, these relationships that you form in this really intense moment that have the potential to last far beyond it. Yeah, they're enduring. Um, so there's probably a bunch of field organizers listening to this show who want to be you, right? They want to uh, work in Iowa and then win and then work in the White House someday. But They've been sprinting towards caucus day and living and breathing this moment every day for as long as they've been on this campaign. And then at some point, someone has said, dial into this conference call, you're going somewhere else after, or your job is over. Do you have any advice for them for how to manage that uncertainty and that anxiety? Yeah, I guess... um... (laughs) I guess I have two kinds of advice. So there's a there's a whole scene in the book about people getting on that conference called the day after the caucus um, and discovering. Uh, one person described caucus night as this cliff we went off with no understanding of what was beneath it uh-huh. because you didn't know how it was going to turn out. No one had said to you, people will go on to other states. Like right. it, it literally didn't occur to people, I can keep doing this <laughs> until this conference call. And so, um, but they were scattered across about 25 different states afterwards. So I got sent to Alabama. Um, almost everyone I work with got sent to Nevada. Um, and, uh, I, I guess I, I, so I would say two pieces of advice is one is, um, what everyone would stress was that because Iowa was first in the nominating process, the campaign, and this is true of other campaigns too, had put so many resources into Iowa, um, that other states hadn't been getting. So what they discovered when they went to other states was that whatever they thought they hadn't had enough of in Iowa was about 10 times worse. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you had a printer? Oh, that must've been nice. Yeah. And then for me personally, I mean, a mistake that I made after Iowa, um, which other people didn't make because they had had the experience of going someplace new was to assume their experience in Iowa would be universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the mistake that it took me a while to understand is um, when you go into a new place, the, uh, the cultural dynamics, the social dynamics of that place are completely unique. Yeah. They need to inform how you organize. Yeah. And so... Um, being in listening mode as much as possible while at the same time understanding we have to do this thing in a relatively short amount of time um, is something I wish I had known before. Respect and power include, man. Right. Uh, how was Alabama? <laughs> Where did you live? What did you do? Uh, well, in Alabama, I um, uh, I lived in Mobile. Been there. Um, it's and nice. It's, yeah. And when I first, uh, something that I was not great at and still struggle with is um, breaking away from brand familiarity when choosing places to eat. Okay. So I would eat at the Waffle House about two or three times a day. I mean, that's uh, a pretty good choice. For the entire four weeks I was in Alabama. Ooh. Um, Some LBs get packed on? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, <laughs> the crippling anxiety that I carried throughout that experience meant that I didn't actually eat that much. Right. That's so it true. really balanced itself out in a way. That's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I, it was <laughs> it was such a relief to um, to be reunited in later states with people I had worked with in Iowa, um, because in that period where there were so many states voting at the same time, you know, no one had the resources to stay together. Like you had to go someplace on your own and work it. 
Um, and so, you know, when we got back to Texas, I saw all these people I'd worked with in Iowa again, mm -hmm. and it was like this uh, reunion. And it still feels that way, if we're being honest. I mean, any field organizers in Iowa listening to this, and I know I'm really uh, delivering for a niche audience here, but I can't help myself. It's like Joe Klein wrote this piece in Time after Barack Obama won Iowa, and he basically said that, you know, these young field organizers will see themselves in the West Wing someday and just know how much uh, that experience contributed to Barack Obama being president. I mean, I just think that people that give of themselves and and give their entire life to a campaign, no matter which campaign it is, no matter what state they work in, no matter what the job is, are heroic people in my book because uh, it takes a lot out of you. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the, I mean, it turns out after, after doing this as as heroic as that is you can't really make 11 chapters just about knocking doors and no. uh and making phone calls uh so things people would talk about were just the personal cost of doing this for a year and a half like the physical and mental and emotional um toll and uh how uh it was only later looking back that they realized you know they had either put themselves in some um dangerous driving situations or oh, like God, they, yeah. they hadn't been taking care of themselves in any way um, and, but they would always say, like, the person that made me recognize I need to change something about what I'm doing was always an older volunteer who would care enough to insist that I eat more or go to bed earlier. Um, Were there any stories that really jumped out of you? Yeah, I think um, uh, I guess so. Um, one thing that j jumped out at me, almost everyone I talked with had some version of um, I got into a car accident and it almost always seemed to happen in the final month before a major election day. Ugh, of course. And, uh, so those kind of, um, would stick with me when people would talk about those. Uh, but I, I think the, the, um, the, the place that that comes from is people really care about this stuff. And the, the, the way they would describe it was, um, I felt like any moment I wasn't working, was a moment that I was letting down this bigger cause. Mm -hmm. And not just, not Barack Obama, who to many of them became this, you know, like it, it quickly was not about him, yeah. uh, is the way people would talk about it. Like they were interested because of him and obviously they wanted him to win, but it became about the other people you're working with. It became about not letting them down. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so- they, letting Paul Tews down. I mean, like Mary Grace, these people, these leaders that we loved, revered. Yeah. And uh, so that was something that people would talk about a lot that I think um, stuck with me. Uh, and I think too, you know, it's easy to think that this was somehow unique to these people or this moment, but I think that spirit that animated these people is something that I feel like is here again. Like it's the same spirit too. that animated people in the women's march or in the 2018 midterms, or, you know, I listened to the wilderness podcast, uh, this week and this woman, Angela, in episode oh, she's two, incredible. Who st yeah, she started this, her own group in Pennsylvania. I mean, the same, um, uh, spirit, this desire for something to be different that animates these people today, I think is what was animating these people then. Yeah. And, and I have to tell you, from my time in Iowa with the Warren campaign and and uh, Booker's, Cory Booker's campaign, like uh, it, there's the same vibe with a lot of these groups. I mean, there it's it's really inspiring. Um, man, you jogged my memory about a car story. I remember being in, uh, I remember being in Des Moines, and we were driving with Ted Sorensen, who is a Kennedy speechwriter, you know, famous, legendary person. And I was in the van with him, with like me and Marvin Nicholson and someone else and someone was driving. 
And there were tornado warnings. So the Secret Service guys hit the gas and we're doing like 90. You can barely see because it's raining so hard. And like somehow the whole mental orientation of the people in every one of these cars was like, we got to get to this event on time with Obama. And Sorensen finally turned to the driver and he said, son, I'm 90 years old. I can barely see, but I can see that van in front of us. Could we please slow down? (laughs) And he's like, okay, you know what? He's got a point. You know, one very important uh, reader uh, of your book was your editor, I believe, who obviously gave you notes, but now is also going out to Canvas for the last few weeks. Yeah. I uh, So Colleen Lowry, the editor for this book, is going out to Iowa for the last uh, 10 days or so leading Love up it. to the caucus um, to be a part of what these people were a part of. What's um, her turf? Uh, I don't think it's been assigned yet. I'm okay. not sure. I need to check. Uh, we're doing a, an event in Iowa City um, about a week before the caucus or reading thing. So I'll see her there. Yeah, I want Colleen in a tumwa. I want her to, <laughs> I want her to gut it out, you know, go somewhere where there's not gonna be a lot of Democrats. Yeah. Well, she was a, um, she was a, a out of state volunteer in Pennsylvania in 08. No, uh, that's, that's awesome. So I think when this came across her desk, she recognized a piece of herself in these people. I, and also, I mean, I think that's a good part about the book again, is just volunteering. Like it's not just really cold and it's not just scary sometimes in outdoors. It's fun. It's rewarding. You'll meet people. You'll have great experiences. It will be funny and weird at times. But it's like the the book, I think, does a great job of spelling out how meaningful this work is for people. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was something people would stress to me again and again. So I hope that comes through. It did. It did. Um, my last question for you, and it, maybe it's more of a conversation starter than a question, but there's been this big dust up this week about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in a conversation they had a few years back where Elizabeth Warren felt like Bernie Sanders said a woman could never be president. Bernie Sanders um, uh, denies that that happened. And I'm not trying to weigh in on either side of that conversation because obviously I wasn't there. But it did remind me of when I sat down with you for this book and I realized how bad my memory is. I mean, like, were you surprised at how much time you had to spend fact-checking people or, or helping people remember things or are just inaccurate memories? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, because you're living this stuff, you know, you're really living the days when you're doing this. Um, and so I think part of you thinks, well, I'll never forget. Yes, and this is know, the formative experience of my life. Yeah, right? but it quickly fades. Um, and so... One of the th- mistakes I made in doing this was no one interviewed me before I started the project. So like all of my memories got replaced by other people's. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that so, weird how that happened? Yeah. Uh, but I managed to hold on to most of my emails from this period. Oh, that's good. Um, and so when I would do these interviews, I would send people these emails ahead of time um, and anything I could find about their turf to kind of help them remember, you know, this was a, this was a precinct captain. This was a volunteer, you know, w- tell me about that person. Um, and I think, you know, to that point about um, uh, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, I think it's easy for people to forget uh, just how heated the 2008 primary got. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I was struck by when I went to do these interviews, I interviewed some people who had worked on the Clinton campaign who came over to the Obama campaign as part of this. And um, personally, just the uh, amount of respect that I have for people who made that choice yeah, was really hard. something. Because they did everything everyone else did. Um, and they worked as hard as everyone else did. And almost immediately, so many of them decided uh, to join the general election campaign because it was about more than one candidate. It was about the effect this campaign will have on people's lives. Yeah. Um, and so 
hearing them talk about that, going back and looking at um, some of the things that Senator Clinton said uh, shortly after her concession, um, and I think what a what an effect that had on the party being unified by the end of that summer, um, I think was really important. And I think as we think about 2020, you know, one, um, absolutely nothing that has happened this year comes anywhere close to anything that happened that year. Oh, buckle up, everybody. Yeah. It's going to get so much worse. Um, but the other thing that I, you know, find reassuring is um, because people were able to come together in 2008 after such a heated primary that went on so long, um, that uh, as long as people keep this larger mission in mind, that come the end, um, people will be together. Yeah. Well, listen, I- I'm so glad you did this book. It, it There are funny stories. There are heartbreaking stories. There are stories that make you uh, remember why you got involved in politics in the first place, you know, and just like average people who did heroic work to elect this man president. So, I mean, they said this day would never come. It's on bookshelves now. Uh, Chris, you know, thank you for putting hundreds of hours into this thing. It really is like a really important uh, piece of history. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. All right. Thanks to Chris for joining us today, and uh, we'll talk to you on Thursday. Thanks to the New York Times headboard. We're sorry, we like you. <laughs> we, we're just we. I feel a little, we're a little harsh. <laughs> yeah, look, there's some really awesome people on it. Charlie Wartzel's hilarious, a great writer about technology. Jesse Wegman, very smart. Yeah, a bunch of really brilliant people on there. Yeah. Yeah. Running up bedroom, Hillary endorsing Bernie. Shake the whole thing up. <laughs> Rattle those cages. That's so funny. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Conian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.